The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So it was 5.30 in the morning. Uh, I was waking up as the alarm went off in our cabin. We were on vacation on a cruise ship. And uh, for some reason, we had to get up at 5.30 in the morning on our vacation. And at the time, I was 12 years old. My sister was nine. And so we wake up. Our parents drag us up out of bed, you know, kicking and screaming. We end up, you know, leaving the room looking like zombies. We're totally exhausted. Uh, And and so we get out of the room, and our uncle and cousins join us who are with us on this vacation. And we go out to the top deck of the boat because we were going to see what my parents referred to as a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And so we needed to get up at 5.30 in the morning so we could be on the deck by 6 o'clock because it was going to be crowded. There's going to be lots of people on the deck. And sure enough, we get to the deck, and uh, we're, we're up there, and there are tons of people everywhere. It's crowded. Uh, and it's kind of like a wide deck that wraps around the ship. So we're on the front looking out, and what's the once-in-a-lifetime experience is that we're actually going through the Panama Canal. Has anybody ever done a cruise like that where you've gone through? Yeah, okay, a few of you. So you go through the Panama Canal, and what's interesting is the cruise ship that we were on was custom-built. For this voyage. And so there was one foot of clearance on each side of the ship. So just imagine a massive cruise ship that's just fit with like one. So we might have heard some, some like squeechy, some, some uh, noises coming from the sides. And so we're going through this. My, my parents are amazed. They're like, whoa, you know, one of the man-made wonders of the world. Uh, they're, they're videotaping. My uncle was there with them. They're just like marveling at the Panama Canal, and rightfully so. And then it was one of those like hey, kids, are, are you getting this kind of moments? And they look back and say, hey, kids, are you, are you getting... And we are lounged out, passed out on some chairs behind us as my parents are like, like amazed and taken aback by what they're seeing. And so we're asleep, we're exhausted, and our parents are like, come on, get up. This is, when are you ever going to go through the Panama Canal again? And so we're like, okay, fine. So we get ourselves up and we watch. And we sit there for about 15 more minutes. And it takes about two hours to go through that particular lock. So 15 minutes later, we ended up going to the breakfast buffet and just kind of watching from the window. But uh, we, we stayed out there for a few minutes. But I want to show you something because I wish I would have known this. So I have a map here of the Panama Canal. So just so you can kind of see, that top left portion So the top left portion is the Caribbean Sea. I know it's kind of confusing and upside down, but Caribbean Sea is on the left, and on the the bottom right is the Pacific Ocean. So if you can kind of see that yellow line, we went in through the Panama Canal that way, and we looped around in what's called the Gatun Lake. I think that's how you pronounce it. And so we were in there, and so that's where we were. And so I wish I would have known this. This would have been awesome if I would have responded to my parents. So my dad says to me, hey, when is the next time that you'll ever go through the Panama Canal? Get up. I wish I would have said, well, about noon when our ship turns around and goes right back through the Panama Canal. Because apparently, I don't know if you know this, but apparently it requires a lot of gasoline to go around the tip of South America. Like that would have been a longer voyage, very expensive for the ship. And so instead of going around, they just turn around and go back through the Panama Canal. And so sure enough, at about noon, bright as day, no worry about it being dark and gloomy, we go back through the Panama Canal. 
And I, of course, give my parents a hard time, my 12-year-old self, and my siblings and cousins, we all give them a, a hard time. But if I only knew, that would have been a special moment. This morning, we're going to talk about one of those foundational truths. Throughout this series, we're exploring foundational truths. And, and if we only knew and grasped the gravity of this, if we only understood and applied this truth to our lives, it would change and shape the way we view others, the way we view ourselves, and the way we act, the way we think. And so let's start Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick up the creation story in verse number 24. So we're picking it up in day 6. So the, the universe has already been created, heavens, the earth, birds of the air have been created, fish of the sea have been created, trees, plants. So we find ourselves in day number six. Listen to what it says in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the, on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And so when we read this, we read of the various land animals that God creates. And the, the language that's used there is God makes them according to their kinds. Uh, the word kinds there is uh, very loosely associated with our idea of a species, this is not a, a scientifically technical term, but this is like God saying, I'm going to make aardvarks and gophers and uh, rats and all sorts of different animals. So this is what God is doing. He's creating all these different animals. And the phrase that repeats over and over and over again is he creates them according to their kinds. This same phrase is used when it describes the creation of the plants and the trees and the fish and the birds. That God creates each of these things according to their kinds. And that's going to be really important as we read this next section. Look what it says in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so as we begin to read the creation story, what we notice is that it's very careful and very intentional about how it describes the way in which God creates there, there's patterns that we see. There's phrases that repeat. We see the phrase, and God saw that it was good, repeated. Everything is started by saying, and God said. When God creates plants, trees, uh, fish, and animals, it says that God created them according to their kinds. But what we just read was an interruption. Something is different about the end of day six. When God comes to the climax, the pinnacle of his creation, this is the magnum opus. This is the masterpiece of all creation. When he gets to the creation of man and woman, something distinct is happening here. It does not say, let the earth bring forth human beings according to their kinds. But rather, it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so the comparison that's made from other animals is to other animals, but the comparison when it comes to humanity is a comparison to God. So there's something unique here. And so what is this phrase, this idea that we are made in the image of God actually mean? What's a good definition to work from? So here's kind of where we're going to operate from the rest of our time together. Here's a definition of the image of God. The image of God means that man is distinctly made 
by God, like God, and to represent God. Man is made distinctly by God, like God, and to represent God. Here's what I mean by that. So we are distinct from the rest of creation. When you get to Genesis 2, we, d- we read further about how God forms the man out of the dust of the earth, and he breathes the breath of life into the man. The picture we have here is this beautiful imagery of God uh, being so active and involved in the formation of the human being. And so we are made distinctly above the rest of creation. We have a greater value and worth. Um, So I have a dog, Lola. I love Lola. Uh, We have a great relationship most of the time. And so me and Lola, we we hang out. um, But every human life in this room is more valuable and has more worth than my dog, Lola. That's not to say I don't love Lola. It's not to say that your pet is mean or is bad. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that human life has within it more worth and value than the rest of creation. So we're made distinctly by God and we're made distinctly like God. So what I mean by this is not that we are God, but rather that we have certain qualities and features that make us who we are that sets us apart from the rest of creation. And so just to kind of keep on using my dog Lola as an example, um, so my dog Lola does not have the ability to reason and think with the kind of mental capacity that humans can think. Now you might be thinking, well, you don't know my dog. My dog is smart. My puppy, my kitten is great. Look, Lola's a smart dog too, okay? So I don't doubt your pet is smart, but your pet doesn't stare at the stars and wonder how the universe came into existence, Your pet does not sit on its bed and contemplate why that pet came into being. Right? We, they don't have the ability. I read one thing that suggested, you know, there's no such thing as the history of canine philosophy. Right? It doesn't exist. They don't have that idea. They don't have that mental capacity that we do. And humans throughout history have asked this question. When we see nature, we ask questions of it and we ask why. We have an ability to reason and an inclination to reason and have thoughts that animals don't. The rest of creation doesn't. In the same way, we have a moral capacity that's different from the rest of creation. So my dog Lola knows how to behave because she knows what will get her a spanking and knows what will get her a treat. And so from early age, when she poops in the house, we scold her. Right? But if she poops outside in the grass, we give her the little doggy treat to encourage that behavior. Even though we might use a similar behavior with children, we might use similar tactics, the reality is that, see, it's all the parents laughing, right? So the reality, is, the reality is that we know when we've committed something wrong, not just because we feel guilty because we're about to get hit. There's a moral sense that we each have that is far above the moral capacity of anything else in creation. There's also a relational dynamic to it. Um, there's, there's the fact that each of us were created not only to relate to our creator, but also to others. And so you go throughout time, throughout history, throughout places, everywhere you go, you will see some form of religion or expression of a desire to reach up to God. There's this innate desire within every human being to wonder, where did we come from? Like, how how did we come into existence? So no matter where you go, no matter what culture, there will be as a part of that culture in different ways a component that's curious, that's exploring. There's different religions, there's thousands of religions that try and explain who God is and, and why we're here. And so there's this relational dynamic that we have, that we have a desire to relate to our creator, and we also have a desire to relate to one another. 
We have this relational component that says, well, I want to have friends. Uh, I want to have a spouse. We have this desire for community that's different from the rest of creation. We have a desire for a kind of intimacy in relationships that's different. And so we can see that there's differences that make us not God, but like God in certain respects. So we're made distinctly by God, like God, and to represent God. Look what it says in verse 27. Let's read this once again. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So when we read this, we see the word image used. Um, the word image there is translated from a Hebrew word that, that at its root, what the root means is to carve or to cut. And what this word would often be used to describe in the ancient Near East was there were rulers or kings who they would set up their image. They would set up a carving of themselves in their land um, as a way of representing that their rule, their authority was present there. And so you can think back. So if you were to see a statue of Caesar in some uh, Roman city, distant Roman city, far away from the capital, what that's representing is that Caesar's rule and reign is there. It's present. In the same way, we are God's representatives intended to represent God, his justice, his goodness, represent his character, and display his authority and rule all throughout the earth. And we see this in the next verse. Look what it says in verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what this is saying is that we have this cultural mandate. We have this mandate not just to populate the earth, but to subdue it. We have a, a, cult, we have a mandate not just to, you know, fill the earth, but also to steward creation, to build societies, to build a stability in creation so that humanity flourishes, so that life thrives. We're called to be stewards of what God has entrusted to us. So he gives us dominion. He gives us power over the fish and of the animals, not so that we could abuse that, but so that we could uh, use it as a good stewardship so that humanity flourishes. So We are made distinctly by God, like God, and to represent God. But here's the question. What does that mean for you when you leave church today? What what, what does that even mean when you get to the office tomorrow? Why, Why would that matter when you get to your second period class? Why would it matter when you enter your office? And what we're gonna begin to see is that as we explore and and start to see the image of God as really a framework by which we view every individual on the planet, it begins to change. It begins to lead us down a way of living that is good, that is right, that is just, that is honoring to the image of God that's in every human being. So I want to give you three implications of us being made in the image of God. Three implications that if we were to grasp that every individual is made distinctly by God, like God, and to represent God, that this is how we would conclude. Number one, Every human life matters. If we are made in the image of God, then every single human life matters. When when we consider the expansiveness of creation, so you consider the universe, galaxies, and stars, and then you consider the detail that we see in nature on this tiny little speck in the universe called Earth. 
we see such intricacy, such exact detail. When we see that, what that is screaming to us is that there is a big God who is creating, who is making all things. And what's fascinating is that though this universe is huge, that we see all this detail in nature, the pinnacle or the climax of all creation was when he made us, was when he made men and women in his own image. And that should lead us to marvel at how God would make us in his own image, set apart, distinct from the rest of creation. Every human life matters. Listen to what David said in Psalm chapter 8. This is, this is almost a, a poetic expression of the image of God. He's just reflecting on it. Listen to what he says in Psalm 8, verses 3 through 5. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. And so as David begins to think that as he stares at the stars, as he stares at the moon, the God who set that in place is also thinking about him. He's mindful of him and has crowned us with glory and honor as his representatives throughout the earth. It's just this beautiful picture of who we are. And this has a huge bearing on how we view ourselves. What the picture we have in Psalm 8 is that God is so huge and so immense, so transcendent that he creates all things by speaking them into existence. And yet he is so personal and he is so present that he can't stop thinking about you. That you're constantly on his mind, that he's mindful of you. And this changes the way we view ourselves. So if you came in here this morning kind of limping along, thinking that the labels that others have placed on you, the things that others have called you is what defines you, what the image of God does that tells you, no, you're defined by the fact that your creator made you in his own image and you have inherent value and worth because of that. Not because of what you've done, but because he's placed that in you. And so there's no place, there's no room for us to feel like we're unworthy, like we're nasty, disgusting like the labels that people place on us, there's just no room for that. And then here's where the news gets better. If that wasn't enough, here's where it gets better. That God so loved us, not only did he make us in his image, but he sent his son to die for us. He sent Jesus, his one and only son, to rescue and redeem us in our failure. See, here's the reality. Every single person in this room is made in the image of God with inherent value and worth and dignity, but something has gone terribly wrong. See, this room, including myself, is full of liars, selfish people, jealous people, people who are self-seeking, people who have hurt and harmed others, gossipers. I mean, we could go on. And all of us, guilty as charged. Every single one of us. And the problem runs so deep that not only do we do bad things, but even the good things we do are often motivated out of selfish ambition. So we'll help somebody out as long as we're going to get something in return. Oh, we don't mind giving to something or serving somewhere as long as it makes us feel good about ourselves. And so sometimes even the good things we do are motivated out of selfish goals, selfish ambition. This, this is the problem in our hearts, not just that we're, we do bad, but that at our core, there is something that has gone tragically wrong. And here's why 
Here's why. We walk not ashamed. Because when we read John chapter 3, verse 16, say, For God so loved the world, what it's saying is that God looked down on rebellious, broken, selfish, self-seeking people, and he sent what was most precious to him, to die and suffer so that the rebels could be brought home, so that those who are broken can be restored, so that the imperfect can be perfected because of him. And he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and pay the punishment, the penalty and wrath that we deserved. Literally, Jesus suffering hell in our place so that we could walk away free. And Jesus paid it all. And then three days later, he triumphed over the grave, proving he had victory over sin and death. And so we walk in the victory, we walk in the identity, not only that we are made in the image of God, but those who are in Christ walk in his goodness, his righteousness, and in his holiness. So this is who God made us to be. So there is absolutely no room. There's no room for us to look at another human being as being less than us. Every human life matters. Here's the second implication of us being made in the image of God. Implication number two, where the image of God is honored, humanity flourishes. But where it's dishonored, humanity suffers. So one of the themes that we're going to see throughout this series, and you've already seen it, is that because God created us in a world where these truths exist, because God created us in this way, there is a certain parameter, there's a certain uh, flow, if you will, a rhythm that God created this universe, this world to function in. And so when we live within the confines, the good, gracious boundaries that God has set the universe in, life goes well. Humanity flourishes, but when we insist that that truth, that that reality doesn't exist, or if we insist that we have a better way, then things go bad. And so just picture uh, the law of gravity, just as an example. So suppose with me that you were on a skyscraper, or uh, you knew somebody, they're on a skyscraper, and they insist that they can jump off and survive. They insist, right? There's no jetpack involved. There's no parachute, all right? There's no exceptions to the rule. Just a regular person jumping off a skyscraper. I don't care how confident, I don't care how certain, how brave and courageous that person is. Every single time somebody jumps off a skyscraper, it's going to end poorly. There's such a thing as gravity. And so when we try and operate in a way that says, you know what, gravity is not that big of a deal. Things go bad. And so what we begin to see as we apply the image of God to every aspect of our lives, the way we view others, we see that where the image of God is honored, things go well. Life thrives, humanity flourishes. But where it is dishonored, where it's neglected, life suffers. Things go poorly. And so one of the ways that we can see this is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Listen to what it says, how the image of God bears on how God views murder. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so see how the grounds or the foundation for God saying murder is wrong and worthy of you yourself having your life taken away. This is is what it's saying as a framework and a foundation for that. You just took a life of a person who is made in my image. And so murder is not just a sin or an offense against the person that we've taken their life. It's an offense against the king of kings who placed his image and value and worth in the life of that individual. 
And so at the core, at the heart of just any and every sin that we could commit against another human being or ourselves is this idea that we've distorted or dishonored the image of God in every individual. And so when we consider something like abuse, whether physical, verbal, or emotional, whatever kind of abuse it might be, at its core, it's a degradation a diminishing of the image of God, that that person has inherent value and worth. And for another human being, whether male or female, to look upon another and abuse them is to wage a war against the image of God that that person was created in. It's to assault the image of God that they were created in. And so one in four women at some point in their lives in America, some statistics are greater than that, will experience abuse. And at the core, what that is, is a dishonoring and a diminishing of the image of God. Because when the image of God comes to bear on the way we view others, there's absolutely no place for that. That wouldn't even cross our mind if we see them as a person who's valuable, as a person who is worthy, who's made in the image of God. Then another one that where if the image of God is honored, if the image of God is cherished in human beings, then there's absolutely, it doesn't even make sense for racism to exist. For one race to think themselves superior to another race is absolutely absurd when we consider that every human being, regardless of the amount of melanin in their skin, regardless of where they were born, is made in the image of God. And so as a community, as a church, we have the opportunity to demonstrate in a world and in a country where these issues start flaring up again, we have an opportunity to say, you know what, there's unity in our diversity. There's this beautiful picture of reconciliation within the body of Christ, within the church that says, you know what, what defines me is not the amount of melanin in my skin. What defines me is not where I was born. What defines me is that I am a redeemed person made in the image of God. Every human being on the planet is made in the image of God. So racism begins to just vanish in light of the fact we're made in the image of God. Another one that's kind of difficult, especially for men, this issue of pornography at its core, what is it? but a degradation of the image of God, the dehumanization of another individual so that we could exploit them. As though a human being is the object for our own exploitation. And so we open up our computer screens or our magazines, whatever the case may be, and that person who is a human being with value and worth is made into an object. The problem runs deep. It's not just a small little habit. It's not something that's just kind of not a big deal. It's a huge deal. And the problem runs deep. But the good news, the good news is that there's grace. The good news is that the blood of Jesus is greater and washes away the deepest stain. And the bondage that comes from these things that can be enslaving Some of us born into situations where these kinds of things were just brought into our environment, the grace of God begins to change and mold and shape and say, my kindness is gonna lead you to repentance. I'm gonna draw you here. There's healing, there's hope, there's a better way. So when we consider this, we are all made in the image of God. 
you're here this morning, I think we're all in some way guilty of taking the image of God that's inherent in every single person and dishonoring it, degrading it, no matter which of those categories or some other category. And so I want to read to you Romans chapter 5, verse 20. I love how Eugene Peterson, how he paraphrases this in the, in the Message Bible. Listen to how a former thug, former imprisoner of Christians, a former person who approved of the murder of Christians before he became a Christian himself. Listen to what he says about sin. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. That is the nature of God's forgiveness. It's aggressive and relentless. His forgiveness is greater than our sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so listen to this, please. Let's let's look at every single human being as though they are made equally in the sight of God, in his image, for his glory. And then here's the third implication. That if we're all made in the image of God, here's the third one. We must repent of our apathy and get in the fight. We must repent of our apathy and get in the fight. You see, I'm, I'm convinced that the problem is not so much that we're losing the battle. I'm convinced that's not the problem. I think the problem is more that we're not even in the fight. We're comfortable sitting on our couches pointing at our television screens. As our, as our nation, as we see things begin to degrade, as we see the morality of this world go downhill, we just sit back. And, and I say we on purpose. We sit back. And so we must repent of our indifference and apathy. To repent simply means to change our mind and to say, this is wrong. Stop making excuses for it. Stop making light of it. Call it for what it is and say, this is wrong and I need to change. And so we go to God in prayer. And again, God's kindness draws us to repentance to a place where we say, God, we've, we've messed up. I, I have done this. I've dishonored your image that's placed in every human life. And Lord, I want to change. Stir me to change. Work in me. Change my life. Redeem that which is broken. And God's grace gets to work in us. And he begins to move and stir. And so how do we even get in the fight? How do, we, how do we be a part of standing up and saying, you know what, every human life is made in God's image, distinctly by him, like him, and to represent him? How do we even do this? It seems so overwhelming. Here are three ways. Very simple, very quickly. Number one, we pray. We pray. We beseech, we ask, we beg the king of kings who rules over everything to intervene. We pray for our leaders, we pray for our country, and we say, God, please, we we ask you to move and intervene that every life in our world would be seen as someone valuable made in your image. We must pray. We can't not pray. And then once we pray for God to intervene, we then say, all right, Lord, how do you want to use me to make this change? My life is on the table. This is not a you-do-it moment. This is, God, you do it. Now you show me how I can be a part of what you're doing. And then we ask, and what if, what, what if God wanted to use you to bring about change? 
What if there's a decision or some brokenness in your present or your past that God's grace was so amazing and redeeming that he could say, you know what, you're going to use that to restore and pour into the lives of others who are struggling with the same thing. What if we were to ask and say, God, please intervene, and then, Lord, I lay my life down and say, use me. And then the second thing we do is we engage. We engage. There's multiple ways we can do this. There's places, there's organizations in our community. There's organizations all throughout the world that stand for the cause of the dignity of every human life. And so with our wallets and with our time, we say we're in this because this matters. It's not okay to us. For those who have been redeemed by Jesus, who have placed our faith in Jesus, it's not okay to sit idly by. And so we engage. And then here's the last one. We leverage our influence to make a difference. We leverage our influence to make a difference. See, every, every person in this room will, will leave here and you'll go to a home, you'll go to a classroom, you'll go to an office, a lunch table. You'll go to a circle of influence. And what if we as a community said, I'm going to see the influence, the community, the, the environment that God has placed me in as an opportunity to say, you know what, every human life matters. What if, what if I saw the, the place I worked as an opportunity to represent that every single individual in my office is made in the image of God. And so the one that's criticized, maligned, and gossiped about, I just don't participate in that. That's a person made in the image of God. And so what if we as a community said, you know what, we are going to be the kind of place that's open and diverse and united in our Savior and not based on where we came from. What if we were the kind of place that demonstrated how the image of God comes to bear on our lives in such a way that our lives flourish, that this community changes, and that our world changes? What if to leverage our influence to make a difference, every single one of us have that opportunity? even in the small decisions, that regardless of age, gender, race, ethnicity, d- does it matter? Socioeconomic background, whatever the case may be, every human being is made by God, like God, and to represent him. And so we treat them as though that's who they are. Let's be the kind of people that do that. Ultimately, our only hope, our only hope, even as we do engage and get involved in this fight. Our only hope is the good news of Jesus. For 2,000 years, that's been our hope as the family of God, as the church. For 2,000 years, that's been our rally cry. It remains our rally cry today. That God looked down on us broken people made in his image and sent what was most precious to him to rescue us in our rebellion, to conquer us, in our sin, and say, you're mine, and I love you. And that grace and forgiveness is offered to every individual in this room. So if you're here this morning, and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, the reality is, yeah, you're broken, you're flawed, you're a rebel running from your creator, but the good news is that God brings the rebels home, that he came, he entered in, he didn't step back and say, you deal with it but he got his hands dirty and he suffered in our place so that we could go free. And that grace, that love, that forgiveness is offered to every one of us. Would you bow your heads?
just in this moment of privacy, if you're here this morning and you'd say, I, I want this gift. I want to receive the forgiveness and grace of Jesus. If you want to make that decision right now, you can just go to God in a moment of prayer. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you believe this good news, you will be saved. And so right now in a moment of prayer, you can just say, Jesus, I know I need you. I know I'm flawed. I know I've run from you. But I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe that you paid the penalty for my sin. I run to you as my Savior and Lord. And by doing that, you can start this journey of faith. And for the rest of us, Lord, my my prayer, my hope, is that we would leave this place as men and women who see others as individuals made in the image of God. And Lord, we pray that justice would roll down like water and that righteousness would flow down like everlasting streams and that we might be a part of your work to restore, redeem, to mend that which is broken and wounded. Use us as your servants. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with someone about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.